If you would please take your Bibles out once more and return with me to the Gospel of Luke. We pick up once again this morning in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9. Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 9. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir, let us kill him, so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then? will the owner of the vineyard do to them. He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Father, we pray once again that you would open your word to us. We desire to understand, Father. We desire to hear your voice in your word. May we profit from it this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The main storyline of this parable would have made sense to everyone who heard it as Jesus spoke it. The parable speaks about an absentee landlord, and they would have been very familiar with that. They were familiar with people who owned fields but lived somewhere else and had other people work the fields for them in exchange for receiving a portion of of the produce. And they would have been familiar with this idea of sending servants in order to collect that portion rather than going themselves. We are familiar with that ourselves in our own history. We had primarily down south uh, something called sharecropping. That was something similar to this. You would work somebody else's land, and in exchange for your ability to work that land and keep some of the produce, some of the profit, you would give a portion to the owner of the land. So for those who were listening to Jesus that day, the setting of this story would have been unremarkable. But what would have been immediately remarkable is how this landlord reacts 
because he does not react as a typical landlord would have. He doesn't react as the people would have expected absentee landlords to react in the time that Jesus spoke this parable. The other thing that would have been immediately recognizable by the people hearing this story is how it would strike them to be like what the prophets had said to them in the days of the Old Testament. Because if you're familiar with the prophets, both major prophets and minor prophets, you'll see even in those writings a pattern in which the Lord again and again indicts the people of Israel and particularly its leaders, saying, have I not sent prophet after prophet after prophet to you, and you have not listened? And so as Jesus tells this story about this absentee landlord who sends his servants to the vine growers, they recognize a pattern, the pattern of the Lord sending prophets with his message to his people and his people not listening to that message and not yielding in obedience to him. But the interesting thing is that the people that Jesus targets in this parable don't see themselves as the bad guys. They don't think they're rejecting God. They don't think that they're being deaf to his word. They don't think they're rejecting God's messengers. As we have studied the parables of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke, and as you read his parables in other Gospels, we find that some of his parables are difficult to understand. Often, his disciples don't understand them either. And later on, when they're away from the crowds, the disciples have to ask Jesus to explain it to them. And Jesus explained that sometimes he speaks in parables precisely so that people will not understand what he's saying. But that's not always the case. This parable, for instance, is readily understood, even by those Jesus is condemning. If you sneak down and take a look at verse 19, we're told that the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly what he was getting at, and they tried to lay hands on him immediately. Now, they couldn't do that because they feared the people, and we'll deal more with that next week. But what we need to understand this morning is that Jesus is speaking forth an indictment of all Israel, but particularly its leaders, because of the hardness of their hearts toward the word of God which has come through both God's prophetic messengers and now through God's own son. They are rejecting God, but they are so far from him and so hardened against him and his word that they do not even realize it. Now it would be very easy for us to criticize these people who lived 2,000 years ago. And they are certainly worthy of criticism. But could not that same criticism be directed towards so many Christian churches in our own day? 
Could not that same criticism be directed toward many of us who are sitting here this morning, who perhaps have hardened ourselves to the word of God? For 2,000 years, we've had the word of God faithfully proclaimed to us by messenger after messenger. And yet so often, we have been blind to our sin. We have been bold in our rejection of the word of God. Western culture, which in large part grew out of the soil of Christendom, has now consciously rejected God and his word and his son and his gospel. And so this passage is just as relevant for us today as it was for the people who heard it from the lips of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And I'd like to draw your attention this morning to three or four things that we learn from this passage. I want us to learn something about our sin. And I want us to learn something about God. I want us to learn something about judgment. And I want us to learn something about the kingdom. So let's look at these things together. First, what does this passage teach us about our sin? These people did not believe that they were rejecting God and his word. In fact, the chief priests and the scribes were part of a back-to-the-Bible movement in their day. Out of all the people on the planet, they viewed themselves as those who were most attentive to and most respectful of the word of God. And yet, when God sent his own son, the Messiah, they rejected him. Hours after Jesus had spoken these words in this final week of his earthly ministry prior to his crucifixion, just hours after he told this parable, he is going to be nailed to a tree. Crucified on a cross to die for the sins of the world. Why? Because his own people rejected him. What does John say in the first chapter of his gospel? He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. They did not listen. They did not understand. They did not see their own sin. They did not recognize the message which was coming to them from God, and they rejected God and his word and his Christ. And it drives us to ask, or at least it should, whether we understand the state of our own hearts. Do we understand our profound need for forgiveness? Do we realize how often we are in the grip of the spirit of the age, the lust of the flesh? Are we rejecting God without even knowing it? Here in the West, ever since the Enlightenment, from the 1700s on to the present day, we have seen wave after wave of unbelief. 
Like the waves of the ocean, it comes rolling in again and again and again. Christianity is looked upon by the cultural leadership as narrow and bigoted and ignorant and irrational. And we are most certainly living in such a time in our own day. The world looks at Christianity and sees us as narrow and bigoted in our morality. And we look ignorant and irrational to them in our claims of absolute truth. Biblical truth which shaped Western culture for millennia is looked upon by this culture as an expression of narrow-minded bigotry. And the pressure to conform to this world can be so great that professing Christians are shaken and succumb to the fear of man. At first, perhaps, one simply remains quiet, not wanting people to know what they actually think. But soon that cowardice leads to rationalization as they adopt the opinions of the world while finding ways to cover them in a thin veneer of religiosity. A culture which has forsaken its Christian heritage can no longer tolerate a faithful Christian church. Because the Bible and Christian doctrine and Christian preaching clearly, unambiguously, and uniformly condemns the behavior and the lifestyle of the culture as immoral. And the world will not stand for that kind of condemnation. The world which once demanded only tolerance for its sin will not itself tolerate disapproval. And because God and his word and those who faithfully proclaim that word cannot offer the approval that the world seeks, we are viewed as dangerous and extreme and narrow and divisive. This is the world in which we live today. This is why so many people in our own day, want to say, well, I believe in God, and I'm a Christian, but I don't embrace the Bible as my authority. I think the Bible can get things wrong. That ancient book can't address 21st century issues. So sometimes we just need to set it aside and listen to what the Spirit is saying here in the present age, as if the Spirit has changed his mind over the years. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit does not change. The Scriptures do not change. God does not change. You cannot reject the Scripture without rejecting Christ. And you cannot receive the authority of Christ while at the same time rejecting the authority of His Word. It doesn't work. The authority of Christ is expressed in his word. What the word says, Christ says. If we reject one, we reject the other. And anyone who says, I reject the scripture, but I love Jesus, loves a different Jesus. Yet the spirit of the age tempts us to want to say, yes, we're Christians, but we don't accept this authority. We're under the same temptations that the people Jesus was speaking to were experiencing. 
And of course, it's not just the world. It's, it's, it's not just the spirit of this age. It's the flesh. J.C. Ryle, in his wonderful devotional commentary on this passage, talks about the way that our desires sometimes reject God and his word. And I love the phrase he uses. He says, if we could pull, if we could pull God down from his throne, we would. If we could pull God down from his throne, we would. And what he means is, sometimes there are things that we want which are against God's word and against his authority, but we still want them. And our desire for those things and for the pleasures that they bring are greater than our desire for obedience to our Lord. For joy in God, in Christ, in the gospel. And so we reject the authority of Christ in those moments. And we make ourselves the authority. We make our desires the authority. And we chase after that which we want. And when we do, we show that we are rejecting God. We are rejecting his word. We are rejecting him. And of course... The Bible says that it's not only the world and the flesh, but it's also the devil who is at issue here. He is seeking to sift us like wheat so that we will be blind to the judgment to come, so that we will reject the authority of God. And we need to realize that this struggle, this fight, is going on here, now, in this room, in your own heart and your life. Will you embrace the word of God and submit to its authority? This passage shows us our sin, the state of our hearts, the depth of our predicament, and the profundity of our need for forgiveness. That's what this text shows us about our sin. What does this passage teach us about God? It teaches us that God is patient, doesn't it? Over and over, this landlord sends servants. One servant is sent, mistreated, sent away. Another servant is sent, he's mistreated, and sent away. In fact, I suspect the original hearers would have thought, that landlord is kind of naive, isn't he? Keep sending people back and back and back. But Jesus has a point in showing that. God is patient. God is forbearing. God is merciful. God is long-suffering. You know, landlords had a reputation in Palestine in Jesus' time that if you didn't pay up your portion of the harvest, of the crops, of the yield of the land, they actually, many of them, had private hit squads this was nothing to play with. If you didn't pay your portion of the harvest on time, Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci would come knocking on your door, cracking their knuckles, telling you they were going to break your kneecaps unless you paid up. This was a real thing, and everybody knew about it. These landlords literally sent guys to impress upon you the importance of paying them their portion of the yield. 
But that's not what this landlord does. This landlord patiently and graciously sends one servant after the other, giving the vine growers one chance and then another and then another to come around and do what was right. And every servant he sent was mistreated and sent away until finally, in one last act of patience and grace, he sends his own beloved son. And Jesus is telling you something, isn't he, about the kindness and the patience and the forbearance and the mercy of God. He's telling you that because when you come to realize what your sin is, And what your sin deserves, the most unnatural thing in the world is to run to God. The natural thing is to run away from him. Because for the first time you've realized what you are and what you deserve in your temptation in that moment when you think about being in the presence of an all-seeing, holy, all-knowing Heavenly Father is to run. Become Jonah. But Jesus is showing us what God is like. He's showing us the kindness and patience and forgiveness and forbearance and grace of God so that when we do realize who we are before him, when we realize what we have done, when we realize what we deserve, we might rather be encouraged to run to this gracious God rather than away from him. But there are those who will still refuse to see. So Jesus teaches us something else as well. If what he tells us about God and his patience and his grace, if that won't make an impression, well, he has something else to tell us. He tells us about judgment. And what this passage tells us about judgment is that judgment is certain You look down to verse 15, and after the son is thrown out of the vineyard and killed, Jesus asks this question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And the answer he gives is that he will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Do we understand the certain judgment that Jesus is teaching here. Do we understand that the judgment of God comes on those who reject him and reject his gospel of grace? No, there are many people today, even in Christian pulpits, who want to assure you that this is not the case. All will be well. Peace, peace, they say. No one will fall under judgment. God is love, don't you know? And so there cannot be judgment. But Jesus, who knows God the Father a little bit better than any of us do, says, no, there will be judgment. Because God is loving That's why he sent all those messengers. That's why he sent his son. 
But if one rejects the message, if one rejects his son, God is also just. And he will execute judgment. And it is certain. So who are you going to believe? Jesus? Or one who dares to contradict Jesus? Jesus, in his love, is lifting up the veil of the future, and he is saying to you, I want you to see what is going to happen to all those who reject me and reject the gospel. He does this out of love. He shows us what is coming because he knows that it is easy for us to look at this life and think, apparently I'm going to get by with my sin. I'm going to prosper in my sin. I'm going to be happy in my sin. There are going to be no eternal consequences for my sin. And as you read through scripture, we're told time and time again in the Bible that that is precisely how unbelievers think. In Psalm 73, Asaph gives us insight into the mind and the heart of the unbeliever when he tells us that they say to themselves, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? And there in that psalm, Asaph is describing the unbeliever and how he's going through life and everything seems just fine. And he knows himself to be a sinner, but he doesn't see any consequence for it. And so he deceives himself into thinking that, I guess God doesn't know or doesn't care. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells us of mockers who come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. See, that's how an unbeliever thinks. I can sin, and apparently there will be no consequence. But the wicked man and the mocker are wrong. So Jesus lifts up the veil of the future, and he says, I want to show you what is going to happen to all who reject me. And he does this because he loves. It's not Jesus who wants to blind us to the future consequences of sin. It's Satan who wants to do that. Jesus wants you to know Jesus wants you to know that judgment is certain unless one turns and repents and trusts in Christ. When you hear someone assuring you that there will be no final consequence for the rejection of God, the rejection of Christ, the rejection of the word, the rejection of the gospel, know and understand that you are listening to the voice of the serpent and he is telling the same lie, asking again the same question he asked in the garden. Has God said, Satan does not want you to see the certainty of judgment. It is loving, gracious, patient Jesus who does want you to see. And he speaks the truth. So that we might know judgment is certain unless you turn from your sin and turn to him. 
then judgment can be escaped. Because Jesus, in the crucifixion, took that judgment upon himself for all who will trust in him. One last thing Jesus teaches us here in this passage. He teaches us something about the kingdom. And what he teaches us is that the kingdom, which he has been speaking about through this gospel, right, through the other gospels as well, the kingdom of God, it will be victorious. At the end of the story, notice first in verse 16 and then in verse 18, that Jesus indicates that the kingdom is going to prevail no matter what the wicked vine growers do. If the wicked vine growers have rejected the servants and the son, then the field will be taken away from them and it will be given to others. And this is a picture of what is going to happen when through the shed blood of Jesus we move from the old covenant to the new covenant. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the so-called leaders of Israel. And they have not been doing their jobs. And because they have rejected God, they have rejected the prophets, and they have rejected Jesus, the kingdom is going to be taken from them. We're told in a verse that alludes not only to Psalm 118, but also to Isaiah chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 2. It's also quoted in 1 Timothy 2. That everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when that stone falls on anyone, it will crush him. That language is taken directly from the Old Testament prophets. And it is intended to make clear that God's kingdom is going to be established. And any enemy of that kingdom is going to be crushed. There's a proverb in the old Jewish Midrash, which is very similar to this, and Jesus himself may have been familiar with it. It says, when you drop a pot on a stone, woe to the pot. When you drop a stone on the pot, woe to the pot. The pot loses no matter which way you go. And that's what Jesus is saying there in verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone, broken to pieces. On whomever the stone falls, scattered like dust. The stone wins. The stone is the kingdom. The kingdom will be victorious. What is at stake is not whether God's kingdom will prevail. What is at stake is whether you will enjoy that kingdom. Whether you will be a part of that kingdom. If you resist, you will be broken. You will be crushed. You will be, as the language literally says, pulverized. You will not stand. 
God's kingdom will prevail whether you freely bow the knee or not. You know, it's interesting. I said at the beginning of this message that since the Enlightenment, we've gone through a series of waves of unbelief in Western culture. And one of the reactions to those waves of unbelief from within Christian churches has been to say, you know, the the message of Christianity doesn't work anymore. We've got to improve it. We've got to update it so that it's more appealing to the culture, so that it's more acceptable to the culture. If we don't do that, Christianity will cease to exist. We've got to save Christianity because the success of Christianity is at stake, and so we've got to change the message so that the church can continue on. What nonsense. You wonder if people who talk like that have ever actually read the Bible at all. The gates of hell will not stand against the church, against the kingdom. Compromising with the culture is never the right answer. Jesus tells you one of the reasons why here the kingdom will prevail. You know, we, we may see a progressive rejection of Christ and the word of God and, and God himself and of the Christian faith in the western part of the world, but does that mean the kingdom is failing? No. The kingdom is not confined to the west. The word of God is exploding in other parts of the world, in Africa and Asia, In Muslim nations, the gospel is going forth, accomplishing the purposes for which God sends it. Thousands upon thousands are coming to Christ. The question is, as we face the issue of rejection of truth in our own time and in our own place, and sometimes in our own hearts, is whether God's kingdom will prevail. And the guarantee of Jesus Christ is that it will. The only question is, will we be a part of that kingdom? And you see why Jesus said these words to those who were gathered around him in this last week of his earthly ministry before his crucifixion. He's asking them to look at their own hearts, to recognize their sin, to recognize the condition in which they find themselves, to recognize their need. He's asking them to look at God and see what he is like. He's ready to forgive. He is patient. He's asking them to reckon with the certain judgment that is to come if they will not bow the knee to Christ. And he's asking them to understand the kingdom will prevail. The kingdom will be victorious. All of these things are not just vitally important for those people to understand, but for us as well. May the Lord bless his word and give us understanding today in Jesus name father thank you for your word we pray father in the name of Christ that you would make it real to us we pray father that we would understand that we would in understanding father have a sense of urgency an urgency father to share the gospel, an urgency to live lives of holiness that are distinct from the world around us. Bring these things to pass in our own lives and in our own church, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.